0: just gonna say Wendy was yelling at me yesterday to make sure the sermon is quick so she can get out of here at time and now we're late because she's talking so if they don't get out in time that's not on me okay everyone I know you guys so I know that I need to ask this question before I launch into the next chapter of first Samuel the question is this do you have the stomach to listen to me talk about rap music again If not, I understand. I know that nobody here listens to that and that's totally understandable and okay. I can skip ahead if you like. I promise what I'm going to say connects with the passage and the theme and it's a story you can understand. But if if people are like, I don't want to hear that, then I can skip it. Is it okay if I tell you this story? No? Got some no's. Okay. I promise it'll... It'll be followable. Stick with me. Rapid. Is that a pun? Because if it is. Okay, stick with me. As you know, I spend a lot of time, like a lot of time, quantifying my love of music. I'm constantly coming up with inconsequential lists of rankings in my head. With certain groups of friends and with my brothers, I have an opportunity to vent and share and debate these various opinions, and in the midst of all this venting and sharing and debating, I've come to the substantial conclusion that four of my all-time favourite musicians, musical acts, historically and currently, um, are the Beatles, Bob Dylan, U2 and Led Zeppelin, which I've talked about them at length, but rounding out this collection of five favourite musical artists of all time happens to be a rapper, and his name is Kendrick Lamar. Kendrick Lamar is endlessly fascinating to me. He combines his prowess as the most skilled, like technically skilled rapper of his generation with really excellent musicianship, Musicianship to tell powerful stories about growing up in poverty and depravity in the ghetto, or wrestling with the vices that accompany that poverty and subsequent fame, racial injustice and tensions, and most amazingly of all, and the reason he's top five for me, his active, meaningful, complex relationship with Jesus Christ. You wouldn't know of his faith by listening to a few of his isolated singles, which feature all the the tropes, the hip-hop trappings that we dismiss it as a genre for, sex, money, murder. But those songs are always, and I mean always, part of a larger album narrative. And all three of Kendrick's masterpiece albums feature narrative journeys from brokenness to redemption. Now in hip-hop, there's a lot of redemption stories, and it always just means they get rich and famous. That's the redemption. They go from poverty to riches, and it, it's empty and it means nothing in the end. But this his stories are not the typical redemption narratives that we find, not just in music, but in movies and TV. Um, it's not just fame and fortune. Instead, Kendrick's redemption is always rooted in the teachings of Scripture and his faith in Christ. In his first album, he is redeemed. It's looking back to when he was 17, and it's the story of him being redeemed from a bloody life of empty coping mechanisms, which he calls dying of thirst, by stepping out into the reality of family and forgiveness and faith. In his second album, he is redeemed from a self-serving life of power, privilege, pleasure, and profits by shining a light on systemic racial injustices around him, and at the same time, shining a light on his own complicity within those same oppressive systems. He doesn't just point the finger at others. Unlike most people in, in... popular figures in in mainstream media. He points the finger at himself and sees where he's guilty as well. And on his third album, he is redeemed from the dichotomous choices that threaten to crush either our physical or our spiritual selves by choosing, as he says throughout the album, weakness over wickedness. Is it wickedness or is it weakness? Is a question that runs through the album. Wickedness being all the, the trappings and vices of modern life. That wickedness that he talks about is the life of sex, money, and murder that he had either witnessed or participated in throughout his own past experiences. Um, Weakness, which you think is a bad thing, but the weakness that he ends up choosing at the end of the album is the forgiveness and humility and selfless love modeled by Jesus himself. Things that his neighbors in Compton, California, his neighbors in America and North America at large, they label those things weakness, but they are strengths. So in poverty, he turns to the kingdom. In fame and fortune, he turns to the kingdom. In the brokenness that comes with being black in America, or being any kind of human in this fallen world we live in, he turns to the kingdom. That's his album, Narratives. It's incredible. Kendrick Lamar is a brilliant example of the enormous pressures of life, temptations, vices, injustices, etc., sin, the pressures of life creating shining diamonds. Why? Because of his faith. One quick story to illustrate this before we move into First Samuel 18. This is the story that, it, it's just a great story, and it, it connects. It's a crystallization of, of his entire discography. It's the final song on the last studio album that he released to date in 2017. The song is called Duckworth, which is a funny name for a song, but not until you realize that Kendrick Lamar's professional surname is actually just his middle name. His full name is is actually Kendrick Lamar Duckworth. It's his last name. And it's not, to see why, it's not hard to see why an aspiring rapper would, would, would want to hide that last name. It's not exactly a tough guy name. Um, but on this song, uh, the name Duckworth plays a crucial role in, in demonstrating Kendrick's view of the world. So here's the story, the story of Duckworth, the song. And it's entirely true. And it's entirely autobiographical. Although Kendrick himself is not the central figure in, in this own story. The story of the song Duckworth begins by introducing us to Anthony, a street hood who has sold enormous amounts of drugs and has become incredibly wealthy because of it. Anthony is a violent man, having stuck people up in the past at gunpoint, including in 1984 when he robbed a KFC that was across the road from the housing project that he grew up in. Fast forward a half decade and we meet another man, Ducky, who is working at that same KFC. Ducky is aware of the violent tendencies of some of his customers, but instead of calling the police or confronting them, like getting macho with these tough guys and causing a bigger problem, he instead offers kindness. Ducky puts an extra biscuit in the meals of these gangbangers. For this reason, the extra biscuits, Anthony, who still frequents that KFC that he had robbed half a decade earlier, grows to like Ducky and never attempts to rob from him despite his inclinations to do just that. Well, fast forward another 20 years, and Kendrick himself finally enters the scene as a 17-year-old who is looking to turn away from street life by investing fully in a music career. As a burgeoning young rapper, he catches the ear of the president of, president of Top Dog Records, a small record label in L.A. This president of Top Dog Entertainment is one Anthony Top Dog Tiffith, the same Anthony we met earlier in the song, who had abandoned his lifestyle of drugs and guns and violence in favour of music. One day, as Kendrick is recording with Anthony, Kendrick's dad comes to the studio to watch his son at work. His dad, as it turns out, is Kenny Duckworth, who is known by friends and family as Ducky. Anthony and Ducky immediately recognise each other, and nobody in the room can fathom the twists and turns that brought these two men together to birth the career of Kendrick Lamar, greatest rapper of his generation. In the final stanzas of the song Duckworth, Kendrick writes this powerful summation of his own origin story. So this these are the last lines of the song Duckworth. Two extra biscuits, Anthony like ducky and let him slide. Didn't kill him, in fact it looks like they're the last to survive. Pay attention, that one decision changed both of their lives. One curse at a time. Reverse the manifest and I'll tell you why. You take two strangers and put them in random predicaments, give them a soul so they can make their own choices and live with it. 20 years later, them since them same strangers, you make them meet again, inside recording studios where they reaping their benefits, then you start reminding them about that chicken incident, whoever thought the greatest rapper would be from coincidence, because if Anthony killed Ducky, Top Dog would be serving life while I grew up without a father and die in a gunfight. It's really an incredible story, and 100% true. Both Anthony and Ducky chose weakness towards each other instead of wickedness. They chose humility and peace... Instead of ego and violence. The key line is right there in the middle. One curse at a time, reverse the manifest. This is the fourteenth song on an album that deals with this theme over and over, reversing curses. Um, after that last stanza, the song literally rewinds through the 13 songs that came before you hear like a you know, like a rewind sound. Um, and they, they touch on different songs throughout the album which document his previous life of sex, money, and murder that he is turning from. It's a literal reversal hinged on Kendrick's acceptance that when we turn our life over to the weakness of Christ, he gives us the strength to live in a greater way, a kingdom way. Kendrick's entire discography is about highlighting the curses he has always been surrounded by and the curses that we are all surrounded by because sex, money, murder, maybe not murder, but violence, hatred, those are things that I wrestle with just as much as Kendrick Lamar. Maybe not with a gun in my hand, but I still wrestle with it. By emphasizing that those curses can be reversed uh, by making kingdom choices, Kendrick elevates himself above the crowd, above his peers. He doesn't mention Jesus by name in the song Duckworth, not even once, but all the signs that he plans throughout his career make it evident that Jesus is at the root of his transformation. And with that, the rap portion of today's sermon is over for now. Is that okay? Was that acceptable? Okay, good. In First Samuel, we've just met a young boy named David. In fact, we've met him three times. First, he was secretly anointed as God's chosen leader of Israel by Samuel in chapter 16. A little shepherd boy from nowhere, a nobody from nowhere, given Yahweh's stamp of approval because of his heart for God. That's our first introduction. Then in the second half of chapter 16, we learn that he was so filled with God's spirit that it came out in his music making, which was the only thing that could placate King Saul when Saul would have bouts of mental illness. Second introduction. The third introduction to David was David the courageous warrior, who looks past the intimidating giant to see a greater God worthy of our faith. Anointed leader, musician, and warrior, the three most dominant elements of David's character, that when we think of David, those are the things we think about. Well, this morning, we will see another crucial element of David's character, his, that he is a popular, beloved figure whose life is in the hands of providence. But interestingly, we never learn this from David himself. In this chapter, we are privy to the thoughts of many people, including the entire nation of Israel. Most predominantly, we're privy to the thoughts of Saul. But we never get into the head of David himself. We learn everything we need to know about David from the responses of those around him, particularly the the royal family with King Saul at its head. It is Saul that we learn the most about David from, as Saul stands in stark contrast to David. The spirit of God fills David. A tormenting spirit from God fills Saul. David is humble, courageous, and bold. Saul is proud, cowardly, and jealous. God is with David, but God has rejected Saul. Throughout this whole chapter, we will see Saul try to bring his young nemesis down, and every time he tries, it has the opposite effect. David instead gets lifted up. This is the connection to Kendrick Lamar, between David and Kendrick Lamar. When we seek the will of God, nothing can stand in our way. Not poverty, not anonymity, Not oppression, not injustice, not jealous kings or rival gangs, not sex, money, murder, or any other human vice. So let's read 1 Samuel 18 and see how this plays out. And by the way, there is a hilariously gross story at the end of this chapter. Beware. Chapter 18. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. This is now the third time David is outfitted with the armor of somebody else. First he was outfitted with Saul's armor. That didn't work. Then he kills Goliath and takes Goliath's sword, and now Jonathan. I think it's a portrait that David doesn't come from his own power. It's given to him from someone else. Literally, the armor comes from someone else, but more entirely it comes from god whatever saul sent him to do david did it so successfully that saul gave him a high rank in the army this pleased all the people and saul's officers as well when the men were when the men were returning home after david had killed the philistine the women came out from all around all the towns of israel to meet king saul with singing and dancing with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes as they danced they sang saul has slain his thousands and david His tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house when David was playing the harp, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had left Saul. That's the key verse for the chapter. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter, Merab. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. That statement doesn't make any sense, but it will make sense in the paragraphs to come. But David said to Saul, who am I? And what is my family or my father's clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? So when the time came for Mirab, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given in marriage to Adriel of Mahola instead. Now Saul's other daughter, Michal, was in love with David. And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him, and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, Now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Then Saul ordered his attendants, Speak to David privately and say, Look, the king is pleased with you, and his attendants all like you. Now become his son-in-law. They repeated those words to David. But David said, Do you think it is a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I am only a poor man and little known. When Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David and his men went out and killed 200 Philistines. He brought their foreskins and presented the full number to the king so that he might become the king's son-in-law. What a gift. Then Saul gave him to his daughter Michal in marriage. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michal loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy for the rest of his days. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers and his name became well known. I'm really very glad that the price my father-in-law demanded for me for marrying Angie was only 20 Philistine foreskins. 200 is a bit much. Which is why Saul commanded it. He, He knew it was a lot. He was making David battle 100 Philistines, who would certainly put up a fight if that part of the body was at stake, and he assumed that would result in David's demise. Instead, it results in David's ascension to the royal family. Saul meant it for harm. God used it for good and for glory. Get used to that statement. But I'm getting ahead of myself. In the immediate aftermath of the victory over Goliath, Jonathan and David became bonded in an unbreakable covenant of love. The Hebrew word for love used in these opening lines is not a romantic word, but a political word. It still recognizes a deep and genuine affection. They loved each other like brothers um, between these two young champions. But it also recognizes a somewhat conspiratorial element. Um, Two parties bound together against whatever enemies may come, dedicated to the safeguarding of each other. It's somewhat of an equivalent to our English idiom, thick as thieves. In fact, Jonathan is so bonded to his friend David that he hands his armor over to him, which is a sign of deference. Jonathan, who is the crown prince of Israel, is renouncing the throne in favor of David. That's why he gives him all his princely articles. He's saying, you will be the next in line for the throne. It's a powerful thing. For the rest of their lives, the covenant between Jonathan and David will stand. First, Jonathan will lay his own life on the line to protect David from his own dad. And later, as king, David will offer grace to Jonathan's family in fulfillment of his covenantal bond of love and peace to Jonathan. They will forever have each other's backs, with the rightful heir deferring all titles of power towards his truest friend, David. Little would Jonathan know that the main enemy he would have to safeguard his best friend against was his own father, King Saul. Speaking of King Saul, Jonathan isn't the only member of the royal household who loves David deeply and is drawn to his magnetic and selfless personality. Saul himself, head of the family, once felt that way towards David. And as we see in this passage, even though he's consumed by jealousy towards his young squire, Saul cannot function without David. Saul still loves David, somewhere in in that mess of jealousy. In fact, he needs David's transcendent musical abilities at, at the lyre, it's like a harp guitar thing. Um... To calm his ragged mental health, even as David's very presence fills him with murderous resentment. It's this weird cycle. Walter Brueggemann says David drives Saul wild, but only David can soothe Saul. Saul is left with an endless cycle of rage and comfort, wherein the comforter, David, evokes more rage, which requires fresh comfort for Saul. Saul once loved David as a son, and glimpses of that love, or at least that undeniable relational connection, can still be found. So, Jonathan he loves David like a brother. Saul, he loves David like a son, or at least he used to. But there's other members of the royal family who love David in a much more physical and romantic fashion. The royal princesses, Mirab and Michal. Well, the the, the passage doesn't say that Mirab fell for the dreamy shepherd warrior, but Michal sure did. She loves David like a husband, which is eventually what he becomes to her. So David is fully ingrained in the royal family from all angles. He is uh, a servant to the king, Saul. He's like a son to Saul. He is best friend, more than just best friends, with the, the royal prince, Jonathan. And he is now to be married to the royal princess, Michal. He is fully ingrained. Saul cannot escape the presence of those who adore his one nemesis. Everywhere Saul goes, they all love David, even around his own dinner table. But what's worse for Saul than his children being bonded to David is that the nation around him is enamored with David. The nation that Saul himself is supposed to be in command of is, is totally enamored with David, even though we the reader know that that won't last for long. Chapter 18 comes on the heels of David's victory over Goliath, which is a moment of triumph in which Saul shares with David. Saul is the commander. He deserves credit. In fact, most of the time, the king gets all the credit. But it isn't enough for the king. Sharing the credit is not enough for the king. As they return from battle, women come out with their tambourines and their ukuleles to dance and celebrate the great victory these champions have had over their long-time oppressors, the Philistines. This was a common practice in ancient days. It's common today. I think when I thought of this scene, I thought of this picture, which is one of the most iconic pictures of the 20th century. This is Victory, victory Over Europe Day, and the sailor kissing a nurse in Times Square, celebrating the end of the war. But this story in in 1 Samuel 18 is different. A once-anonymous youngster from the middle of nowhere, a shepherd boy with ridiculous faith, has not only conquered the unconquerable giant with merely a sling and a stone, but has continued to wage an unexpectedly and thoroughly successful campaign against their enemies, finding victory wherever he goes against the hated Philistines. Word travels quickly, and the name of David, son of Jesse of Bethlehem, captivates the people. Each of whom, every person in Israel knows somebody like David. Knows probably a hundred somebody's like David. A little shepherd boy. Many of them are that person. So David's name is, it rises to great acclaim. He's this unassuming hero. He's a folk legend. Usually in military victories, the king receives all the glory. But here, through every small town and village dotting the landscape of Israel, the name of David is given top billing on the marquee. Come one, come all. See the mighty hero of Israel, slayer of giants, conquerors of tens of thousands of oppressors, the hand and heart of God himself, David, and everybody erupts in applause. Oh, and also King Saul. He did all right. He's here too, we think. And then a few claps and and a cough. Since Saul has long abandoned his anointed calling as leader of God's people, and since he has long ignored the direction of Yahweh, the true king of Israel, Saul is ill-equipped, to handle the humiliation of having a mere shepherd boy usurp his glory. Which is kind of fair enough. That, that would be hard on anybody's ego. With each chiming timbrel and strumming lyre and dancing young woman, the jealousy within the king crackles and burns brighter and hotter. Saul's entire family adores David and is fiercely loyal to him. His entire nation celebrates David and exalts him over Saul himself. Saul has grown dangerously paranoid, envious, and resentful. Soon, Saul's entire existence will be consumed by his fear that David will overtake him and claim the throne from him. And that, that is the central irony of 1 Samuel 18. Because we know that that's exactly what's going to happen. We were told that chapters earlier. Saul is terrified that this young whippersnapper will replace him. And guess what? He's right. That's exactly what's going to happen. We know this, and David knows this, although he's far too humble to behave in any way that intentionally draws glory towards himself and away from his anointed king. And most ironically of all, Saul knows this. Saul knows that he has lost favor with God and that God's spirit has been withdrawn from him. Samuel told him this. David knows that he has been filled with that same spirit and anointed as God's chosen leader of Israel. Samuel told him this. And we know that there is inherent tension between the wickedness of God's first anointed king and the weakness of this small shepherd boy who we know will replace Saul one day. And we know this because first Samuel told us this. We know what's going to happen. We don't know how it's going to happen. But we know that Saul's right to be jealous. We know that he's right to be paranoid. That's exactly what's happening. David will usurp his throne. All the players, like us, know the inevitable outcome of this conflict between between David and Saul. It's just that nobody knows exactly how it will all unfold. Nobody, that is, except the orchestrator of the entire royal concerto, God himself. God knows how it's going to play out. God is completely in control of the entire situation. Saul, he thinks he's in control, but each conniving plot that he hatches against David just ends up tightening the noose around his own neck. David knows that he's not in control and that Yahweh is in control, so he accepts his human king's direction gladly while keeping his vision on the will of the true king above. And in doing so, David is given victory in all he does. When he went out on these campaigns to fight the Philistines, he doesn't know he's going to be victorious. He trusts he will be. He's living just like you and I. We do things we hope are right. We hope we will be safe in. We hope is the right thing. We don't know for sure. That's David. We know that David will become king. David doesn't know that yet. He's just trusting his his current king and the true king, Yahweh. And in doing so, he's given victory in all he does. It's pride versus humility, wickedness versus weakness. It's Saul abandoning God's direction and kicking and screaming against the consequences versus David submitting to God's will and serving God and others fearlessly. The text wants us to see both of their destinies unfolding before our very eyes. In his all-consuming jealousy, Saul continually turns his back on God, and everything works against him. But for David, victory is predetermined by the will of God, and even the actions meant to harm him just keep ending up as blessings for David. Some examples of this from just this chapter. Saul wants David as far away from him as possible, so he puts him in command of a thousand men. A thousand men is... Is enough men to put him in very real military danger. He's not like a general who's above it all and won't get struck by an arrow. He's very much in danger. But it's also not enough men that he should gain fame by doing any real damage against the Philistines. Or so Saul thought. That was the assumption. With empowerment from God's spirit, David's legion is undefeated and his positive reputation among his fellow Israelites grows exponentially. So Saul tries a secondary tactic. If you can't bring a man down through violent means, maybe you can bring him down through sexual means. You'll note that that's the exact plan that David uses in Second Samuel against Uriah to claim Uriah's wife Bathsheba. First he tries to murder him with war. Then he tries sex. None of it works. Or actually it does work, unfortunately. So Saul dangles his daughters in front of David with the nefarious plot of sending David, the, the suitor, off to certain death in pursuit of Philistine foreskins. Instead, the Lord is with David, and David returns with twice the amount before the allotted time is done, and his willingness to go above and beyond demonstrates his humility, his, his acknowledgement that he's unworthy to become a royal prince. That attitude of humility, dedication, and exceeding orders towards Saul will carry over in his attitude towards his heavenly king as well. So now Saul has trapped himself in the corner. Every action Saul intended for harm instead becomes an opportunity for David's glory. By the end of the chapter, all of Israel has gone gaga for their hero, David, And Saul's hated nemesis has now become his son-in-law, the second in line for the throne. Actually, first in line because Jonathan has given that to David, but Saul doesn't know that yet. Shh, don't tell him. David's ascension to the throne of Israel cannot be stopped because God is working on David's behalf. Violence cannot stop him, for God's spirit fills him with courage and strength. Fame cannot stop him, for God's spirit fills him with humility and selflessness. Lust cannot stop him, for God's spirit fills him with discipline and sacrificial love. Violence, fame, and lust, God conquers all of that for David. Or, as Kendrick Lamar repeatedly raps about when speaking of his own broken upbringing, sex, money, murder. Kendrick, like David, is victorious over sex, money, and murder, because he accepts the will and direction of the one true king. Whatever the ghetto could throw at Kendrick, drugs, drive-by shootings, destitution, he overcame it all by drinking deep of God's spirit and embracing a kingdom vision. Every curse was reversed, as he rhymes on Duckworth. The same is true for David, the future king. Every curse that Saul could conceive of to hurl in David's direction, the Holy Spirit instead intercepted and ran back for a touchdown against Saul. It's not arbitrary that David is experiencing all of this tremendous blessing. It's not by accident, that David is the one who's experiencing these blessings. By accepting weakness over wickedness, David becomes the most excellent model of biblical kingship that Israel would ever have for a thousand years or so, until his relative rose up to the cross and stepped out of an empty tomb. There's a reason God's spirit is filling David. It's because David seeks to be filled by that spirit. It's what he wants, it's his whole goal, his whole vision is to be filled with that spirit. And there's a reason why Saul is empty of God's spirit. He willfully rejects it. Based on his selfish ambition and blinded by wrathful jealousy, Saul is consumed by his hatred for the rising star in his own court and in his own family. So he launches an all-out operation to have David, the thorn in his side, surgically removed. But no matter what Saul tries, whether it's sex, money, or murder, David overcomes it by God's power and plan. What Saul intends for harm, God turns into good. To illustrate this divine reversal for God's faithful followers, which is the whole point of this sermon, that God reverses curses into blessings for us, I relied on the backstory of Kendrick Lamar, a musician that most people know little or care little about. But the Bible itself, which I assume you all care about, is littered with stories along this theme. Dennis mentioned... Joseph earlier. I'm glad you did. Joseph is a great example of this theme of curses being turned into blessings. Joseph was beaten by his brothers, thrown in a well, sold into slavery. Why? Because his brothers, like Saul, were jealous of Joseph. They saw that God seemed to be with their little brother no matter what, and this little runt couldn't keep his mouth closed, and so they threw him in a well, sold him into slavery. They intended harm for him. Upon being reunited with Joseph, who is by this time now second in command of the most powerful empire on earth, the brothers grovel and beg for mercy. But in Genesis fifty twenty, which you see at the top of this slide here, in Genesis fifty twenty, Joseph responds graciously by saying, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives through the principle that Dennis talked about, the, this, the Preparation of grain through the seven years of, of famine. What you intended for harm, God used for good. In the very next book of the Bible, Exodus, the Pharaoh, fearful of Israel and greedy for glory, enslaves and oppresses the Hebrew people. But Exodus one twelve reverses that curse, saying, The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. God's will could not be contained by a violent king. When the king later wickedly attempts infanticide to kill all the Hebrew babies to control their population, the Hebrew midwives courageously disobey. And chapter 1, verse 20 reads, the people increased and became even more numerous. Curses turned into blessings. Several generations later, a different Egyptian king hardens his heart against God and increases the brutality of their slavery, which became the direct cause of the 10 plagues and ultimately the Israelite exodus, going from slaves... To Pharaoh, to servants, free servants of Yahweh. All of these pharaohs, they tried to curse the Hebrews, but God blesses them in their cursing. Similarly, Daniel and his friends experience repeated calamities in their lives. They're forced into exile to serve a bloodthirsty enemy empire. They're tossed into a furnace for refusing to bow to this self-obsessed king's golden idol. They're thrown to the lions because of the jealousy of his colleagues. There's that jealousy thing again. But in all of this, Daniel and his friends rose to prominence and places of influence, where God could be glorified among the enemy nations, and Daniel, Daniel would share in some of that renown as well, even though the glory all goes to God. Daniel was raised up as well, and his friends. Repeated harm is turned into repeated good for those who serve faithfully, and glory is given to the God whose spirit empowers these servants. But the ultimate example of this principle isn't found in the courts of Egypt or Babylon or Israel or the housing projects of Compton, California. The ultimate example of God turning evil into good, reversing the curses, is found on Golgotha, the hill where the Son of God was betrayed by his followers, abandoned by his loved ones, and tortured by those he came to save. It's as unjustly opposed as any human has ever been, Jesus uh, was. But as Bill Arnold writes, the cross is the ultimate opposition to God's work. It's the ultimate curse. But in this most dramatic of all reversals, it has become the instrument of God's redemption and the eternal symbol of his love for the world. Bless or Curses become blessings. Weakness overcomes wickedness. Jesus taught in Matthew 5 that when people oppose you, you should rejoice. He said blessed are you when people insult you persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me excuse me because of me rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you they are opposing you now because of me Jesus says the same way Joseph was opposed the same way the enslaved Israelites were opposed in Egypt the same way Daniel was opposed the same way David was opposed by King Saul the same way Kendrick Lamar was opposed and most obviously triumphant of all, the same way our Lord Jesus Christ was crushed, oppressed, and opposed, we can expect opposition for our faith in the King of Kings. Not that anyone will enslave us or throw us into a well or a lion's den or attempt to murder us for our running shoes or throw a spear at us while we're playing guitar or or nail us to a cross for proclaiming that the love of God has come to save sinners everywhere. We're not going to experience that kind of opposition and oppression. But when we do run into challenges, when we do carry the cross of discipleship, when we do suffer, when others do attempt to harm us, we can follow the examples of these heroes in these stories. We can be strong and confident and even rejoice knowing that the God who controlled David's destiny is controlling our destiny as well. However they attempt to harm us will turn out for our good. That's the promise of Scripture. That's the absolute truth across the pages of, from Joseph in Genesis to that's the whole story of the book of Revelation. It's not about America going in arms against Russia or nonsense like that. That's not what Revelation's about. Revelation is about victory coming from crushed people because Jesus is already victorious. Out of curses come blessings from the beginning of Scripture to the very end. Sure. Yeah, that's that's great. Yeah, sometimes we are the blessings to those curses. When other people are cursed, God uses us to bring blessing and salvation. That's well said, Dennis. Thank you. Um, but across the pages of Scripture, this principle is true. God reverses curses into blessings. The early Christians sang as they were being fed to the lions, and they prayed for forgiveness for their enemies as they were being burned alive. Why? Because they were masochists? Because they enjoyed pain? No, because they knew that a body can be crushed, but a soul cannot. When God is for us, who can be against us? Pat and Wendy, this is the last paragraph. If we choose weakness over wickedness, meaning if we choose humility over pride and forgiveness over vengeance and love over hate, if we choose a kingdom life over an earthly existence, then we are already victorious. So be courageous. He has already reversed the curse on the cross. Have faith. He has already prepared good things for those who follow him. Beware, for Saul is a warning to those who are selfish enough and proud enough and ignorant enough to fight against the indomitable will of Yahweh. If you try that, you will lose it every time. So beware. There is a warning in chapter 18. But ultimately be encouraged. The God who rose up a small anonymous shepherd boy to the throne of Israel is the same God who rose up his lonely persecuted son on a cross, but then raised him up from the grave and raised him up in glory. And the same God is here to raise you up as well. Nothing can stop us. Many things in this world may try, but we know that all things God wor- in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That's Romans 8.28. So take heart. In this kingdom of reversals, we cannot be stopped if we courageously follow our king. He is already... Overcome the world. It's John sixteen thirty three. Let's pray. Jesus, we trust in your power. We know that your power overcomes whatever giants we face. We just did two months of hearing those stories from people we care about, um, but we know sometimes we will be crushed. We will be opposed. We will be maybe even oppressed. Help us in those moments, those moments of suffering, to trust in you. You are a God who takes curses and reverses them into blessings. We see that throughout scripture. Um, We see that in our own lives, how you take the worst parts of us and the worst parts of the world around us and you shine light into them and you redeem us and you heal us and you save us. Thank you, Jesus. Help us to trust in your strength. We pray all these things in your powerful name. Amen. All right, little Davids, go out victorious people. Have a great week, you guys. Zero but the Zerks server God reverses curses into blessings for us. Saul meant it for harm, God used it for good and for glory. Beans, powder, veggies, rice. <laughs> and with that, the rap portion of today's sermon is over. And then a few claps and, and a cough. Um that's the best sound.